good evening. You are listening to the UNR podcast. Uh, I have Craig, and joining me this evening, I have got Bronwyn. Hello, hello. Mark. Hey. And our special repeat guest, Alexander. Hello. It's getting less special every time he turns up. I assume now he'll just be a regular. Yeah, we might as well just give him a job. He enjoys podcasting. We all know the truth. I do enjoy podcasting. Very good. And um, it's the 1st of November today. We are certainly running out of year, um, but we feel that it's our duty to do a public service announcement. And Mark, I believe you've got something to tell us about what we shouldn't be doing in November. Yes, uh, definitely take your hands off your todger. This is No Nut November. I would like you to please put it down and leave it until December, because apparently it's meant to be healthy for you to not masturbate. Um, now, I, I'm having a hard time believing this, and I, I'm sure you guys, you've all heard of No Nut November, right? I'm just a little distracted by the word todger. Is this another English phrase? Is this one of those? What the hell is a todger? I mean, I guess I, I guess I understand from context. I mean, of all the possible words, todger. I don't know, man. <laughs> yeah, I think the English have probably a few hundred words for penis. We uh, we definitely like to be a little bit inventive when it comes to that. I guess our euphemisms save us the embarrassment of having to use the clinical term. Um, but yeah, so no, not November. Um, it was the beginning of an article I wrote for the newsletter a week and a half ago where I always knew where I wanted to get with it, which is the darker side of these things. And I started off talking about what No Nut November is, um, the idea that if you don't masturbate for a month, that this can be healthy for you. Part of it kind of is legitimate-ish, talking about how you know pornography can be a problem for some people, um, how it can cause them to have Weirdnesses that happen in their lives, in their sexual preferences, unrealistic expectations, all that kind of thing. But I wanted to balance that in the article as well with the fact that actually we shouldn't just demonize the pornography industry. I think a, a lot of it is women who have chosen this as a way of working, and that is absolutely fine. We shouldn't be disparaging that. At the same time, that there are abuses within the industry as well, and that we need to be aware of. And, you know, I think the industry has has some cleaning up of its own act it needs to do. Um, so apart from that, the other ideas that seem to come out online about not nutting for a month, the idea that you're keeping your vital seed within and this kind of sacred energy is being kept within you, which is better than losing it. There's no basis in science for this. It, it's all just made up nonsense. Um, and But weirdly, it seems to be popular with young men on the internet i don't know i mean I, I figured they'd be the prime people for not being able to manage no nut november that you know if anybody's going to fail on day one it's going to be young men on the internet surely uh, i'm intrigued by the um naming of it no nut november i mean uh, maybe i'm being naive but it's the first time i've heard it called nutting Oh, okay. Then you are being naive. Most definitely. <laughs> that one might even be an American term. Alexander? I have to say, it is a familiar term to me. Yeah, okay. familiar. You know, it's your nutsack, right? Well, so this indeed, is, indeed. But yeah. This is not the British. This is not Todger. It sounds like nutting is probably North American, given how confident these two were that they knew what it was. Um, well, I'm also familiar with No Nut November. You know, I am also on the internet. <laughs> Are you have you signed up to No Nut November? No, I just know the phrase. <laughs> <laughs> but no I think, nutting, I think it's a funny yeah. phrase. I it like works the alliteration. Well. Nah, yeah. nah, nah. But, I mean, well, considering November's only just started, uh for the record, I, I have signed up as of the at the moment. You're you're gonna give it a try? No, no, I'm just saying that. At this point in November. Oh, <laughs> right. Okay. So we're talking like 18 hours in and you've managed <laughs> to hold off so far. Yes. I mean, NaNoWriMo is a bit more of a useful, more a better use of your time. But the idea of, um, you know, not nutting off, 
does have its roots in sort of um, the more of occult leanings and the esoteric religions, doesn't it, Mark? Yes, it does, Bronwyn. Thank you for that. Would you like to tell us some more? <laughs> well, no, you're looking at like a lot of those health cults that came up in like the 1920s and 1930s. Um, and you'd have, you know, and that'd be sort of a, what can I say, an offshoot to, um, you know, again, as you say, keep, you know, don't don't waste your seed, you know, and maintain your magic, your um, spiritual and magical power. But of course, you know, you go the opposite way um, in the 60s with the free love. Yeah. And I've been I mean, it's also very much a Christian thing. And, you know, we have churches like um, Arise Church over here who I watched a video from them a while ago. I think I detailed it in the newsletter last week where John and Gillian, the now ex-leaders of Arise, were up on stage at a conference telling everyone that even masturbation was a sin, that they absolutely should not be doing it. And it's horrible. But I've, I've been around the houses on a, what I find a more interesting one, the idea of did Kellogg actually invent cornflakes? to stop people masturbating. And it seems like, as with anything, it's a little bit more complex than that. Um, it seems oh, like you know, I know about this one. Oh, um, oh, go for it. Kellogg Kellogg did have some crazy ideas about, about masturbation, and he wanted people to have a diet that they didn't they didn't have uh, exciting, uh, exciting urges. And he lists all these things that you're not allowed to eat. And it includes eggs and pepper and milk. And um, there's a bit where he says, uh, well, at this point, my patients asked me, doctor, what can I eat? And basically, he wanted people to eat sort of, a, you know, a bran and nothing else. Uh, but the story of cornflakes or of uh, the cornflakes is that his sort of tasteless pap that he would serve his patients, uh, they left a they left a portion out too long and it dried out and they didn't want to waste it. So they served the dried out version once and found that their patients liked it. And that's how cornflakes report. <laughs> oh, so it's the tasty version of the tasteless gruel that's supposed to stop people masturbating. Yes, kind of. he, he made this tasteless gruel <laughs> to you know, give people a low, a low sex drive. And uh, he left it out overnight once. You know, someone didn't clean it up and it dried out. And then people liked the dried out version. But the, the really fun bit, though, is that, I mean, we serve our cornflakes or our bran flakes with milk, right? Kellogg was against milk. He thought milk would give you the sinful desires. So, you know, if you're eating your cornflakes with milk, you're not doing it the Kellogg way. The, the funniest thing was that Kellogg goes on and on about the dangers of pepper. Pepper gives you the sinful desires. It's too spicy, you know, and inflames the blood and all this sort of stuff. <laughs> and now I find whenever I'm eating anything, I put a little pepper on anything. I think I suck at Kellogg. <laughs> <laughs> enjoy my enjoy my pepper yeah he was a first class lunatic Kellogg and, and kind of I going can't... back to sort of that idea of religious you know monasticism and not masturbating I mean we see the same rules for the Buddhist monks and you know Catholic priests as well if you're going to be completely celibate you know it's you are withstanding you are ideally abstaining from all sexual activity which includes masturbation so it comes into some of the very you know this the religious doctrines that we grew up with or amongst hmm. I think I would want to think it's think of it more as um, a consequence of religious practice rather than doctrine. You know, it's about asceticism and self-denial. There's an uh, there's interesting thing in Gandhi's autobiography about him trying to um, free himself not only from, you know, the sin of sexuality, but even from having a sinful desire. He wanted to be able to, um, you know, not feel any desire at all, you know, not the, the, the ability to withstand temptation was not enough. He wanted to feel no temptation at all. And this is part of why he had such an extreme diet, because if you have starve yourself, you can lose your sex drive. But there mm. are, are stories about Gandhi wanting to sleep with, you know, with young teenage girls. And it sounds very scandalous, but he was testing himself to see, could he, could he share the bed with a 14 year old girl and feel no desire? And <laughs> No, so, really? Yeah, this is, you know, not not the cool Gandhi, I guess, that everyone likes to have on the poster. But this is part of the thing that Gandhi was interested in about testing himself so that he would feel no, no uh, human emotions. This uh, sounds but, like a post hoc excuse, surely. <laughs> I think in Gandhi's case, he was sincere, frankly. Um, but uh, it doesn't keep it from being plenty weird anyway. Sounds a lot like uh, what Bert Potter would have been into. 
except I don't think he was trying to uh, test himself uh, to see whether he could withstand uh, the temptation. That's a whole different kettle of fish. Um, so, yeah, so in my article going on from November, I, I looked at red pilling and, um, you know, it, it's a fairly recent idea, the idea of understanding a new reality from swallowing a red pill, which comes from the Matrix. And I talked about how it's um, it's been used historically um, as a, a thing by pickup artists um, and people, a lot of this seems to be driven on subreddit. So people on Reddit who basically are trying to uh, win the battle as they see it between the sexes that they, they need to conquer women. Um, and it's, it's all a bit icky. Um, although red pilling, I, I noted kind of interestingly is something that's it's become much broader. Now the idea uh, that, you know, when you become a conspiracy theorist, you've swallowed the red pill, that you've suddenly had this new reality open to you. You see things for how they actually are, as opposed to all the sheeple that have no clue. I thought that's kind of interesting that it's it's a very mainstream term now. Mm. So just coming back to the Matrix, um, what, what would happen if you didn't choose to take a pill? Isn't that the same as taking the blue pill? I, I don't know. Where was he at the time when he was offered the two pills? They'd kind of abducted him, right? So I'm not sure whether he was in some kind of limbo midway. Mm. The Matrix is filled with binary choices. Mm. It's, it's really if you watch the Matrix again and look for it, at every point it's, you know, and Mr. Anderson, you have a choice. You can be at your desk or you can find another job. <laughs> you know, over and over again in the plot, he has option A or option B, and it's like a choose-your-own-adventure book. Right. And I think if you wanted to critique the, you know, the philosophy of the Matrix, you know, the option, I'm not going to take either of those pills. I'm going to take both pills. I mean, these are not <laughs> imagined in the world of the film. Hmm. Presumably, well, I'm, I'm going to put something out here that maybe the blue pill would just be not actually a real thing. It's more uh, showing that you're making a choice, but given that he's already in this imaginary world, presumably, you know, there's nothing a blue pill needs to do. He just stays where he is. Maybe it just knocks him out or something, because I think they talk about how he in, wakes in, up. In the film, it says, up. the story ends, you wake up in your bed, you believe whatever you want to believe, which I think right. is a really nice phrase, frankly. I'd like to use it's, that more often in my casual conversation. It, it's the know-all. Whatever you want to believe. <laughs> Um, yeah, so from red pilling, um, this is where the article was heading, was a new term that I learned, which was um, black pilling, um, which apparently is what incels do. And uh, so here's another term that might or might not be new to you, Craig. You've known about incels? Hmm. Hmm. Celibate. celibate. So this is people who basically have a disadvantage as far as they can see. That means that it's they're in an unfair situation where, and again, this is men, that they can't get a partner, that there are some alpha males out there. And this is related to the red pill because it's the same idea of being an alpha male and dominating women. But the, these are people that they, they don't see themselves as an alpha male and they've had problems finding a relationship and they see this as being totally unfair. And what seems to happen online is that these people wind each other up into a lava um, that it ends up getting to the point where some of them have committed violence in the past. And the news out of New Zealand recently was that um, the New Zealand Herald had sent an OIA request um, to the Security Intelligence Service, um, and they managed to get hold of a report talking about the possibility of an incel in New Zealand uh, performing a lone wolf attack. And it's interesting that they consider, they definitely consider that to be an option. Um, it's not something that they think even in a small country like New Zealand is out of the question, but they think that it'll be more than just those incel beliefs that might radicalize someone. But of course, with the internet, I think a lot of the time these beliefs are mixed up. You know, you, you end up, finding a few weird things online and they all become a part of your ethos, a part of your belief system that can lead you to believe that the world is against you and that you need to fight back and commit some act of notoriety. Mm. Um, but it's, it's scary. The idea that, you know, maybe another attack is coming that, that people 
young people who normally you'd think you, you just don't need to worry about people in their late teens and 20s, that the internet can really radicalize them. Hmm. Well, the, the question would be, is it going to be a lone wolf or is there, is there a cell of incels? <sighs> How long have you been holding on to that one for? <laughs> Are you not buying what he's selling? Oh, no. Everybody, stop now. Put your puns down and walk away. No more, please. All right. Thank you. Oh, I don't so, know if you expect us to sit here like monks in a cell. <laughs> Refrain from I, all these pleasures. No, no, I, no I, it doesn't satisfy you. We should give up puns as well. <laughs> I, I guess that the the thing about this no nut November though is it's very difficult to verify. I mean, you can claim that you're adhering to it, but uh, where's well, the I, proof? I I think that's my cue to give my favorite statistic about masturbation from Kinsey. Uh, Kinsey did a study and he found that 98% of Americans masturbate and some alarmist journalist asked him, so what does this mean, professor? And Kinsey said, it means 2% of Americans are liars. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And, and for anybody out there that is unsure, it is perfectly natural. Help yourself. If you want to be like Craig and give up for November, you are more than welcome to, but it's probably going to be a hard thing to do. Uh, I did not say that I was going to give up for November. I said it's just the way it started. <laughs> it's coincidental. Yes, indeed, indeed. So um, while we're talking about sex, um, <laughs> Bronwyn, you're going to give us an update about um, the Hyden estate. Yeah, pretty exciting news came out on Friday. Um, Radio New Zealand published um, an article as well as had a follow-up piece in the um, morning report, just sort of talking about the some of the um, research they've been doing about Hyden. Now, of course, they've taken, taken a lot of that information, a little bit from the Facebook pages and Facebook posts that have come up about Bruce Lyons and the things that have gone on in Hyden, um, going a little bit more in depth into the um, how people are sort of coming out of those trainings, um, a little bit traumatized. In terms of you know what's happening happening there in terms of sexual activity, um, but they don't focus all that much in terms of the religious and spiritual and occult side of it. And I feel that there's a whole thing that um, they've missed they missed the boat on in terms of those articles. And then in Saturday in the New Zealand Herald, as part of their little canvas insert uh, magazine, you had Anka Richter who also talked a little bit about her time at ISTA. Now, if you know about Anka's work, um, she did a really good some really good pieces about Centerpoint not too long ago. And she has a book about um, high demand cults coming out in November. But yeah, she sort of started off as, you know, saying it wasn't, it was less erotic and more cathartic for her. But as she got more, she got, she learned more about cults. She ended up seeing some of the more questionable stuff that sort of arise from that. And then she, you know, she ended up sort of moving away from that whole neo-tantric um, side altogether. So it was quite an interesting weekend as an ISTA Hayden investigator so to speak. I, I know I don't have those uh, credentials really, but we're still waiting to see what's happening because Bruce has still been able to sort of bypass some of the criticism. Um, he has lots of supporters who are out there. So even the people who have said, oh, you know, I don't like what happened here, but you're still a good guy, Bruce. You know, I still respect you. We're still waiting for the full call out to come. Yeah. The the level of discourse I've seen online recently, and you've sent me a few links, Bronwyn, I've done a little bit of searching myself. I'm I'm not liking what I see. I mean, Bruce is like, even in his apologies, he's totally unapologetic, which is a particular skill to have. And the people who are criticizing him are, they're just burying it under so many platitude. It, it's like you have to really read deeply to understand when someone's saying, actually, this guy is abusive and this guy is dangerous. It's It's all couched in so much speech that's positive about how, you know, he's a spiritual person, but maybe I just had to find my own path. And this is people that, from what I can understand, have been through hell with him and with others at ISTA. And it's really unfortunate that they're just not willing to basically say, this is awful, watch out. And one thing I noticed in that um, Radio New Zealand report that was quite, I guess, surprising in a way, disappointing, was the ISTA, uh, I think through Bruce Lyon, was saying that they've brought in a new, a new rule as of last November, which they seem to be quite proud of, which was that facilitators and trainers can no longer have sex with the students while they're 
on a course. And it's like, why has that not well, always been the case? Well, what they used to do apparently was that, you know, the students would approach, you know, the students had to approach first. And that I guess that would be fair. But of course, if you read the article, um, if you read the online article, um, when the commenters said, you know, they would sort of stack the deck, they would try to attract the people that they really wanted to come and approach them. And, mm. you know, there's lots of, you know, lots of tactics and Thankfully for that particular commenter, I think they've um, recognized what was wrong about that whole situation and where they aired. Yeah, presumably there's a a set of expectations around how students are going to behave Mm -hmm. and there's that pressure to conform, I guess, and if that's uh, one of the expectations that you go and have sex with your your instructor, then that's what will happen, even if you're not personally comfortable with it. Yeah, and it sounds like it has happened. Yeah, people or, or, have. Or it's really like it. you're going to hit that higher plane of euphoria or existence um, by engaging in the fullness of the human experience, which is sex with your instructor. But they're not. They're still not quite going through the depth of what's happening in these courses. Um, really, they're just talking about the level one course. Um, we know that within the level two course, there's um, evidence that maybe it's a little bit more. Um, there's a lot more um, non-organic penetration, so to speak. I think a carrot's still organic. Yeah, yeah. The, the root chakra going up the anus. Um, reports like that. And people, you know, if you think about you're coming out of, say, the level one training, which is, again, a little bit more maybe cathartic than erotic, and then you go into the level two training, it's a big jump in expectation and potential pressure. So watch this space. You know, as Mark said, a lot of people who have been criticizing, you know, they've been couching a lot of their words with platitudes. But I guess they have reason to. I mean, it seems that there's a lot of money at stake here. And I guess you don't really want to have a cease and desist coming from Bruce Lyon or from Haydn or from ISTA. A lot of these people are running their own practices as well. You know, yeah. they've gone off to become sex healers themselves. And I guess they, well, they don't were, want to be blackballed. Or they were beforehand. And ISTA was this other qualification and a potentially a way to expand your business and expand your reach. If you're part of the ISTA in-group, you could travel internationally, which was, I think, what was Ellie Wilde's story. But as soon as you sort of fall out with them, I mean, that's your business gone, not only internationally, but, you know, you lose a big network. Um, I think Ellie Wilde, who is one of the people who was um, interviewed, she ran that big festival, you know, the, what's called the Eden Festival, um, which is held in Manawatu. Right. Soon. You know, it's loss of income. It's loss of friends. Yes, I guess much like um, when clergy find that they lose the faith and uh, and suddenly everything around them, their friends, their family, their job, it, it's all gone. Um, it's got to be pretty scary to be facing that where you have to start afresh. So let that be a lesson, everybody. Don't build your whole world around skepticism because, you know, if you do end up becoming a flake and uh, and believing in fairies or something, you you at least need some friends that are sympathetic to that. You can just uh, start up a business making weather predictions or something. Oh, just just for a random example and not somebody that used to be a member of the skeptics and now <laughs> seems to be a little bit unhinged. <laughs> yeah, just a completely random example. Unless you want to talk about the crystals that we saw at the Mind Body Spirit Festival, which were relatively phallic. You went to the Mind Body Spirit Festival. Festival, right? Yeah. Now, there, it's one of, I think it's one, there's a big one um, that's held in both Christchurch and Auckland. The one that was held in Upper Hut was not it. I think it was sort of just a local, a bunch of local business people in the hut getting together, offering tarot card and spiritual readings, giving massages, and just selling all sorts of crystal and other woo. I think we sort of went to a spiritualist meeting a, um, a few months ago and we saw some of those um, readers. At the event, I saw one of my ex-work colleagues at the event getting a psychic reading, and that was really disappointing to see. You know, when when someone you know, when someone you've worked with is spending good money consulting a psychic, it's like, ah, oh, oh, I can't believe this is happening. At the same time, though, both you and Bronwyn spent good money to get the little psychic reading, if I recall. <laughs> so I don't know how you get all high and mighty. It was five bucks a piece. It was probably the cheapest thing going in the entire festival. Nevertheless, it's perfectly good five dollars. <laughs> it it was a perfectly good five dollars. And Bronwyn and I both have a perfectly good hand-drawn picture um to show for our money, which I probably should frame and put up on the wall at some point. Mm. A cherished, cherished keepsake of your house. It it is. Well, I mean, I'm a starseed, it turns out. This woman was doing some kind of 
it's not a psychic reading. I think she was in contact with the galactic something. And um, and what she does, it she calls it a light code um, and something reading. And for $5, she'll draw you this picture, which she's channeling. And then she will try and figure out what that picture means about you. And she'll let you know about yourself. And so for me, I was a star seed. My picture was like a box with little dotted lines in it. And she, I think, looked at my beard and figured I was a woodworker. So she ran with that and totally missed the mark. But then when, when you know, as you do with psychics, there's a lot of to and fro and they ask questions, and you give them answers. When we got round to the fact that I build websites, she was happy that actually she had a hit and not a miss that, you know, building stuff out of wood, building stuff out of code. Is it really that different after all? Um, so, yeah, so I'm a star seed. I'm being activated at the moment. My soul is from another galaxy. Um, and I've just arrived on this planet from somewhere else. And I should ignore all detractors, basically, that there are some people who disagree with what I do. And I should just ignore them all and, and trust in my truth. And that's the reading that I got. Bronwyn, how was your reading? My reading was quite empowering. Um, basically, my picture ended up looking like a bunch of Wi-Fi signals. Um, so I'm apparently a, a new soul that the spirit has never seen before, and I'm in the process of breaking through something. So I just have to keep on keeping on. Awesome. Well, that sounds like you're doing well. Yeah. What got me was the colors. I got the pinks and the purples. My my drawing was very feminine. And Mark's was, you know, what, green? Green. All one shade of green. Now, um, if, if you get the newsletter... Um, you will see this weekend. I'm going to put both of them in there. In fact, we might even make one of them the cover for this week or both of them. We'll yeah. see how we go. But yeah, I will I will make sure these images go in the newsletter this weekend and I'll, I'll write a little bit more about the things that we saw when we were there. Yeah. But just to sort of maybe give a little bit of spoiler, I mean, the connection to um, the previous topics is that they did ha sell some really expensive crystals like what $2,200 for the ugliest piece of citrine ever yeah. as well as some very phallic shaped crystals now of course if, if you read the article I wrote months ago about witch talk and stuff like that do not put your crystals into water do not buy crystals whatsoever and certainly do not put crystals up your yuha or your jaxi <laughs> <Because, laughs> or, or let them touch your todger yeah. Well, I mean, can't do much with your todger, but you don't want it touching your bodily fluids or else it will cause, you know, the crystal to sort of, you know, Dissolve. Cause, um, disintegration and you don't want uh, crystal particles in delicate parts. Now, I didn't look at the crystals as carefully as you did. Oh, no. Um, but were they advising you to insert them? There was no advice whatsoever. <laughs> they were just there looking quite obvious. And handily shaped. I, I don't know. I mean, I think you may be projecting your own oh. desires onto the crystals oh, there. Oh, I oh, think they we were go. just pretty rocks, you know. I mean, Freud's on the podcast. Go yeah. for it. Uh, well, tell us know, more, Doctor Kellogg. You see, you see a perfectly normal crystal, and it's ooh, it's got healing energy, and Brandon's mind goes to sex. You know, I don't know. Oof. Well, there's no evidence to the contrary, I suppose, at the moment, Alexander. So we'll leave it at that. <laughs> Oh, is that is that how proof works in the skeptical community now? Yes. There's no evidence just, to the contrary, therefore it must be true. I think that was an admission of guilt. You just need to take that one, Alexander. Easy wins, Alexander. <coughs> but Mark, you spent a lot of time talking to um, a UFO cult. Was that who it was? Yeah, Share International. I've still never been to one of their meetings, so I'm hoping we can all go along at some point. Um, and at that point, I'll probably write a decent length article in the newsletter about it. But I, I love Share International. Most of the people that joined the cult seem to be really kind, older people. Um, and they're very friendly and talkative. They've just swallowed this set of crazy ideas about UFOs and Maitreya coming and these different levels of masters around the world. It, it's all a bit bonkers, um, but they're just really nice people. So I'm looking forward to hanging out with them. They have different meetings. I think one is about kind of prayers. And then another one is where you sit in a circle and talk about your UFO experiences, a bit like Alcoholics Anonymous um, so I, I think there's some mileage in going to visit these people a few times and just just sampling what they have to offer, maybe. 
Hmm. Speaking I, of UFOs, uh, yeah, I saw oh, one the there, right? You saw well, one? I, <laughs> well, I looked up into the sky and I saw some lights that I couldn't immediately identify. It turned out it was probably star, the Starlink satellites. But um, but when I looked up in the sky, there were these just this line of um, dots in the sky and um, making no sound. And um, as I sort of live near the Fenuapai Air Force Base, uh, I thought, well, if it's some military aircraft, I would probably hear it. But uh, it was just a line of line of lights in the sky. So um, okay, moving but, pretty uh, quickly. Somebody, I mean, what do you mean by pretty quickly? I've seen Starlink before, and I think they only shine maybe for a little while after they've been launched. And I would have said they'd have crossed the sky from one side to the other in maybe three minutes or so. Pretty fast moving. Yeah, I think that would probably be about the speed that they were traveling at. I mean, I I saw a picture that somebody had taken of them and put them on Twitter the next day, and they thought it was likely that that was Starlink. So, uh, but, okay. but anyway, that's that's my UFO experience. Nice. We, so. we had a report here um, in Porua in northern Wellington on our local Facebook page. Somebody posted, oh, what are the weird lights in the sky? And it was really nice that immediately like three different people were like, Coast Guard sending up flares. They're just doing a training exercise. And that was the end of it. Nobody even mentioned a UFO. It was uh, kind of <laughs> nice to see the rationalism coming through. I um, didn't have the heart to listen to the UFO cult because, um, you know, they were saying such crazy stuff. Uh, But Mark, who has more stomach for this sort of thing, did. And so I sort of sat, stood next to them with my back turned and listened in on their conversation. And I guess the thing that most struck me about it is if you'd had a person like that 200 years ago, instead of believing in UFOs, they would probably be believing in angels. I mean, the key thing is a fantasy of benevolent beings that are watching over us and that they want to you know, help us, but they can't intervene for some reason, or they want us to figure out on their own, but we can appeal to them. And it's a sort of fantasy of you know, happy guardians or guardian angels or something. So I guess I would say we could say we're living in a more scientific age and that the fantasy is no longer of a supernatural being, but of a, you know, a space alien is fundamentally a you know, a scientifically plausible thing, isn't it? Yeah, unlikely, but at least plausible, I suppose. Yeah, well, I and, mean, you know, which do you think is more likely to exist in the world? Intelligent extraterrestrial life or angels? We're all voted for extraterrestrial life. Face with that easy. choice, aren't we? Most so. definitely, yes. Can any of this be determined, like your likelihood to believe in angels or um, UFOs determined by the size of your head? <laughs> I think I see where you're going with that. Segue action there. (laughs) Yeah. Well. um, I learned a thing or two. So I wrote an article uh, for the the thing about uh, craniometry and its relationship to phrenology. Uh, The main difference between craniometry and phrenology is uh, craniometricians like to measure stuff. So phrenologists would feel the bumps in your head and, you know, wave their arms. And uh, craniometricians like to, uh, you know, to measure centimeters or, or that sort of thing. But in other, events, in other ways that they are similar and that they would come up with bogus theories and, and so on. So I talked about some of my favorite uh, craniometric uh, fantasies. One is the facial angle. The basic idea of which is that your forehead is the part of your head where all the all the higher functions are, all the philosophy and all the everything. And um, so, if you if you want to have a uh, you know to make the European look more advanced than the African, you just sort of rotate the skull a little bit so that the forehead goes forward, I guess. And then related to this is the idea of um, measuring the the cephalic index, which is a measure of how round or oval your head is. You measure the width of your head and the length of your head. You divide the one by the other and you get a number. And um, the the more the number is close to one, the rounder your head. And so then the smaller the number, the more elongated your head. The guy who came up with this idea was Swedish. It turns out that Swedes have very long heads. And so in the racial fantasy of the time that the, you know, the Aryan Swedes had these long heads. And so this must be the sign of the racially superior Aryan mm-hmm. and round headed people are, you know, somehow terrible or inferior or, you know, whatever. 
But then amusingly, it was discovered that uh, the most uh, long-headed people in the world are the Nuer people of southern Sudan who uh, practice uh, cattle herding and you know, don't fulfill the European racial theory stereotype of an advanced people. They don't have Parthenons or you know, whatever to point to. Uh, so then the idea was, and this was where it gets back to the facial angle, that there's two types of long-headedness. There's a type of long-headedness where the, the forehead is swollen, like in the superior Scandinavians. And then the African long-headedness must come from having a, a swollen back of the head where all the uh, you know, primal desires supposedly reside. So it was um, fun to look at all these crazy European uh, fantasies. Uh, but the real occasion for it is we were uh, we were chatting on the um, what the skeptics in cyberspace, and and Tim uh, linked us to a book from uh, what was it 1910 or something like that from the United States, which was lavishly illustrated, and included a hilarious drawing with um, a man with the the, the forehead. Uh, you know, attracting him to science and philosophy and books and so forth. And then the back of the head attracting him to, uh, you know, dissolute nightclubs and canoodling with the opposite sex and, and that sort of thing. So it was fun to see the, you know, all these fantasies coming together all at once. <laughs> that, that book, which is on archive.org. Um, do you remember what the title of it is? If anybody wants to go and look for it. I can look that up very easily, but if it'll take can. me a minute. Yeah. So that that book I just found really interesting in I think it's arrogance. Like it, it wasn't just one or two things it was postulating. This was a whole book of images, each one explaining a different head type and what it meant for the personality. And the author didn't feel they needed to give any evidence, anything to back up any of it. It was just drawing after drawing with an explanation of the personality type. And often the drawings would have a, a little bit of text underneath that would say something like, it's obvious to anyone that this type of forehead belongs to a criminal. And it was like, you're, they're not even trying. They're not even trying to back up anything they're saying here. It was just pure speculation. So it seems like someone's extended flight of fancy, which ended up becoming like a 150-page book or something. It was surprisingly uh, uh, detailed. Um, one of my favorite bits in it is that they had a little picture of Santa Claus, and it said that we could apply these craniometric principles or uh, you know, even to Santa Claus, a fictional character. So it was a fictional science applied to a fictional character. It's hilarious. Uh, the book is called Vought's Practical Character Reader. That's Vought, V-A-U-G-H-T, by one Lewis Allen Vought, <laughs> um, published in the city of Chicago by Vought uh, in 1902. Wow, self-published in 1902, huh? Yes, I, I, I gather he had some sort of institute, so it was published by his institute. But uh, yeah, it's really, it was quite a find, and we all enjoyed looking at the crazy pictures. Hmm. So yeah, that inspired me to uh, write a little thing up on craniometry and racial quote-unquote science. Hmm. It's interesting to see just, just how long this went on for and, and just how much attraction it ended up with that, you know, people really kind of fell into this and, and believed for a while that, that this was a real science. Hmm. But it actually makes me wonder about, you know, popular suspicion of science. You know, some people are not so keen on science or suspicious of science and, you know, it always sort of hurts my feelings a little bit because, you know, I know a lot about the glorious history of physics and it's so fantastic. And how could anyone not be enthusiastic about science? Look at what the physicists have achieved. Okay, but there's lots of people in the world who have had to deal with uh, the consequences of these crazy racial delusions that were presented to them as scientific facts. So if you had to deal with, um, you know, being sent to a bad school or, you know, who knows what, uh, you're, you're, you know, you had a relative who was consigned to a home because some pseudoscientist declared that he was racially inferior or a degenerate criminal on the basis of his skull head or you know, skull shape or something. Yeah, you might have a more negative idea of science. Um, so maybe there should be more self-policing and denunciation of pseudoscience. That, that's an interesting idea, actually. And I, I think I think in general, in a lot of the skeptical topics that I look into, I'm often I, I understand there's reasons for it, but I'm often disappointed how much scientists 
aren't willing to denounce cranks again like like we were talking about with Ister, you know when a scientist goes all out on someone it tends to be really polite and it's kind of disappointing that scientists aren't more willing to say no this is total and utter nonsense that they'll they'll treat it much more kindly than that and i I just wish sometimes that scientists would just rip into these pseudoscientists and let everybody know in no uncertain terms on the other hand, your man Charles Dawkins has done just that. You know, he's made a whole set second career out of telling people that they're full of nonsense. And, uh, you know, he's not necessarily the most tactful person in the world. And I don't know, is he really helping the cause? Richard I, Dawkins? Yes. I kind of go back and forth on that. Yeah, I think he he believes he has expertise outside of his field. I'm talking about scientists talking within their field, you know, that if he wants to rip apart somebody that's talking about how they can activate your DNA by adding an extra four strands, which he has done, then that's great. But I, I think Dawkins often steps way outside of his field and assumes an expertise he doesn't have. And it's often quite a conservative, older white man opinion that it turns out that he's got. Hmm. Well, I, I guess um, that many scientists are highly focused in their own field. So um, criticizing another field, I guess, kind of goes against the grain because they, they don't sort of have that, that training and skepticism. And, yeah, but on and, the other hand, though, yeah. then you find yourself, well, who am I to say there's nothing to astrology? I was trained mm. as a chemist. Yeah, that's mm. not my field. So, you know, at some level, people do need to be able to step out of their fields and say, this is rubbish. Hmm. I don't know. It's um, there's no obvious course of action. I think there are difficulties either way. So we're done with measuring heads then? Well, I don't know. I want to measure my head now. How round does it look, guys? Like a uh, soccer ball. Well, if we're going to be craniometric, freaking get a ruler. It's easy to do. You just hold your head to the side of the door, ruler one way. Hold your head to the back of the door, ruler the other way. You're going to get two numbers. Divide the one number by the other number. You know, I mean, it's not hard. I once, uh, I once uh, talked about this in a class, in an evening class. And uh, as students came in, I said, you know, let's measure. We're going to measure cranial uh, cephalic indexes today. Who'd like to step forward? And we all measured heads. And, you know, I sat there with a calculator and calculated everybody's cephalic index. And, you know, lo and behold, somebody had the longest head. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it was also fun, though, because uh, Lombroso, who was the, they were the uh, what did he call himself, the forensic anthropologist? So he's the one who believed that um, uh, people who were prone to criminality had certain facial features, you know, that there was a uh, I'm not, I mean, may not be quoting him directly, but he thought there was a, a specific arsonist's uh, cheekbone or, a, you know, an embezzler's chin or, you know, whatever. Yeah. You know, he thought you could you could learn what sort of crimes people did by looking at their face. Um, Lombroso was a fan of the round head. He thought the long heads was prone to, uh, you know, prone to criminality and the round headed people were more honest. So, you know, they couldn't they, they couldn't agree among themselves which was the ideal head shape. These uh, mm. people having these craniometric it's, it, fancies. It's interesting that you bring up um, Lombroso because I just did a Google search about ten minutes ago because I heard something on a podcast today about how um, the invention of Dracula uh, was the personification of evil and so the all the features that dracula had in his face and shape and everything was supposedly the exact features that criminals and and awful people would have it i had read this before i was actually hoping to work this into the conversation and you stolen my Mm. thunder (laughs) that the uh the author of uh, Dracula did indeed uh, consult lombroso and dracula's sort of the description of his appearance is designed to mirror the description of a criminal in Lombroso's fancies. Because mm. at the time, you know, Lombroso is a esteemed professor. You know, who knows? Maybe there's something to it. Um, you know, Bram Stoker, what does he know about, <laughs> about biology? Um, you know, the esteemed professor says this. Maybe there's something to it. So he, he drew inspiration from it. I mean, uh, it's, it's not so remembered nowadays that um, the Dracula novel actually has some sort of science fiction elements to it. You know, they're taking trains and they're riding steamboats and all these sort of technologies that are new and exciting when the book was mm-hmm. written or used. 
uh, in the in the story. Hmm. So the you know the ancient horror is defeated partially by modern science, where the you know the modern science of the novel is the science of you know eighteen ninety or whatever it is. Hmm. Right. So I'm going to go on to a boring topic. <laughs> Boo. Boo. <laughs> uh, I I just. Uh, thought of, well, so when I wrote the newsletter at the weekend, I was um, briefly mentioned the the just stop oil protests that are happening in the UK at the moment, um, where there are protesters who are doing things like um, splashing orange paint, uh, attacking luxury goods stores, blocking roads. Uh, and so their stated aim is that they want the UK government to stop the issuing of any new licenses to take oil out of out of the ground or or, or out of the uh, out of the North Sea. Um, so I'd be interested in, in your opinions as to whether you think this is a sort of an effective approach to to protesting. Um, it seems to have been hijacked by. Well, not, not the protests themselves, but the perception seems to be that um, the organisation is wanting people to just stop using oil, um, which at this stage in the game is probably a, a completely impossible task. It's- so I guess uh, there's been a lot of misinformation spread around about what the organisation is hoping to achieve. It's it's interesting because I used to have a midwifery professor who was quite proud um, back in the late 70s or 80s. And her and other people would be protesting the environment in some way. And they would go into grocery stores and take, you know, just fill up these carts full of groceries and just leave them there in some sort of protest mm. against the packaging, against the wastefulness of packaging. I'm not sure. I don't think that was very effective. And also, you know, it's really going to be the low the low wage staff who has to take care of that mess. You are even if you are you know, doing these protests in a luxury goods store or in a museum, well, it's your low paid security workers who are going to get punished for, you know, not acting, acting quickly enough. It's going to be your mm. low wage cashiers who are, you have know, they, the they have their pay deducted, yeah. you know, it's, you think you're doing one thing, but, you know, you're harming, you're, you're seriously harming someone else. And the people with money just don't care. I mean, it can be covered by insurance. These paint, you know, we'd all be sad if one of Van Gogh's paintings was permanently destroyed. But at the same time, the museum is going to is going to get millions of dollars for it. That mm. uh, brings to mind the the local protest we've been having in the last couple of weeks. So I think a week and a half ago, I was um, I dropped my kids off at school and I was driving towards the new motorway transmission gully. And on the mm. way, I got a, a notice come up on my phone, a news article about how protesters are just blocked off the new motorway just north of Porur. And it was like, OK, time to turn around and go back the way I came then and use the old road to get into work. And then just last week, end of last week, I was driving down through Naranga Gorge in Wellington and I noticed a police motorbike parked on the side of the road. And there next to the gantry was a policeman standing there and halfway up the gantry was an old man who was making his way up there to uh, try and block the motorway, which they ended up doing another protest. And these are all about passenger rail, about bringing back passenger rail in New Zealand Mm. and electrifying it as much as possible, bringing prices down, trying to get it apparently back to the 2000 levels. And yeah, I did wonder with these protests as well, whether this is actually effective or not. I don't I don't really think this affects government enough to make government seriously reconsider what they're doing. But it does annoy a lot of everyday people that aren't part of the decision making. Hmm. Yeah, there's certainly uh, parallels, I, I guess, think, between I the, think the, the argument that you're making, though, is very similar to the arguments I, that used to be made against uh, the suffragist movement. These people are just inconveniencing. They're, no one's, this, this, this technique of protest is just uh, is very ineffective. It doesn't create sympathy. Well, I mean, what does, what does effectively cause government policy to change? I mean, the, the dangers of climate change have been known for decades now. And everybody wrings their hands and nobody does anything. I frankly start to wonder if maybe more direct action is necessary. And mm. there, there's part of me that sometimes wonder about the, the 
what is now a complete absence of left-wing terrorism. I mean, all the terrorism in Western countries now is right-wing terrorism. You've got people, you know, attacking mosques or attacking churches or incels, shooting up, you know, um, you know, someplace where they gather women. There, there used to be anarchist terrorists that would try to assassinate heads of state or assassinate governors, or assassinate police generals and so forth in the name of the workers' rights. And that, as far as I can tell, is totally gone. Where is there a left-wing terrorist movement anywhere? And I don't know. I, I sometimes wonder if maybe the situation of the you know, people on working class, working class jobs would be so terrible if the, the elite classes were more frightened of a terrorist reaction. Mm. So, so maybe with, the future of those, the museum skeptics. With those is. thoughts in mind, you know, <laughs> the climate change is a really serious problem. No one is taking it seriously. If you're a person who doesn't have any any real authority in government and you want to act, I don't see a better option for you. But uh, an interesting look, and we're all talking about this climate change all of a sudden, and that seems to have had a, a had a, a demonstrable effect on this podcast. But, but we were mm. all sort of talking <sighs> about climate change, not necessarily because the podcast wasn't around, but, um, you know, when they were doing the um, climate marches, you know, with, um, the, you know, all the kids were leaving the school, school and doing that and yeah. doing that repeatedly. Yeah. So we, we constantly have conversations. And that's the thing about protest and protest action. I mean, you you have conversations. Do the conversations lead to action? And an interesting point that came up at our last Skeptics in the Pub meeting in Wellington was the fact that there's a very tenuous link between the idea of restoring passenger rail to its 2000 levels and electrifying it in New Zealand and having a positive effect on climate change. It seems like maybe the protesters haven't even done their homework and checked to make sure that this is actually going to be good for climate change, that it's it's actually what a country like New Zealand needs, which I thought was quite interesting. Well, uh, our colleague at Skeptics of the Pub, James, is an economist for the government and is extremely knowledgeable of these sorts of issues. And he had some, <laughs> he had some what would have been useful, helpful notes for the uh, similar protesters that maybe they've chosen the wrong target. But uh, I do wonder, though, about, you know, most people are doing nothing about climate change. Somebody's yeah. doing something about it. Uh, Craig's got a Tesla. He's he's doing his bit. <laughs> well, I, and in terms of the the number of uh, kilometers that's done, I think we're into the territory of where uh, the uh, total lifetime emissions that it is producing is less than the equivalent of a a um, uh, an, an internal combustion engine car. So, so awesome. Do you, do you go in territory? Do, do you do laps of Auckland just to try and get that number up as quickly as possible? No. Because <laughs> you work from home. I mean, how are you out driving all the time? Uh, um, well, I mean, we do do have things. Uh, I've made a lot of visits to hospitals this year. Um, oh, good point. Very sobering. <laughs> yes, indeed. That shut me up. Did, well, it didn't shut me up, but it should have shut me up. Take but you're coming back to the protest. Coming back to the protest thing, yeah, it's it's kind of hard to see how the inconveniencing people by sort of shutting down Transmission Gully or or other roads has a has a connection to restoring rail um, because the, they're talking about passenger rail between cities, aren't they? Because there is a there is an efficient passenger rail system in Wellington, as far as I understand. Efficient, yeah, efficient. Yeah, right, I wonder about. Underfunded, um, okay. Although, and, and again, you know, I think I think with a lot with a lot of this, it's about making it cheaper as well. Trying to make sure mm. that more people are using it by hook or by crook. I I will yeah. say this though: I was in Poland once for my on the sabbatical, you know, touring, giving talks, and the people at this Polish university, you know, they don't know anything about New Zealand. But the one thing they did know, apparently, somebody has written an article about how the New Zealand rail system is just so wonderful and so paradisical. And so they would say, things like, so I know you have a really great rail system and blah, blah, blah. And just, everyone knew this. <laughs> and I thought, it's news to me that we have such a great rail system. And uh, they were very surprised to hear me speak disparagingly about Wellington, Wellington Rail and said I should write an article about it. It would be sure to be published. And, you know, apparently it's, uh, you know, this very well-known article in Poland that New Zealand has terrific rail. Yeah. Well, I guess back before the eighties, we had a at least we had a passenger rail system that you were able to get around the country on, um, and of course, back in those days, flying would have been an absolute luxury. 
but then the eighties came along and Kiwi Rail got sold off and or privatized or or something like that. And then they started moving everything in trucks rather than rail and and here we are. But um yeah, just coming back to the just stop oil. So the one interesting statistic that I learned about is that uh in the the oil companies are making profits of around about $3 billion a day by taking oil out of the ground and um, selling it, which is an absolutely astounding figure. That is. Yeah. yeah. It's, um, I might so, go yeah, and dig so in my garden and start looking for oil because that sounds like it's worth some money. It is, but you would be a, you would be a climate vandal, Mark. <laughs> I'm all right with that. Um, but Craig, I, I really like the point that you made earlier very briefly that maybe the skeptics should become a terrorist organization. I I at least feel like we'd be doing something active then, that you know, we'd be we'd be getting out there and I don't know, we're we gonna stab psychics or something. What's the plan? We cannot discuss it on the podcast. Oh, okay. <laughs> all right. This has got to be conversation. <laughs> fight club kind of stuff. All right, nice. <laughs> There was but, a um, poster in the United States it. in the 1950s. Um, it was an advert for some sort of paper towels. And uh, the, the slogan, the sort of the tagline of the advert was hilarious. It said, is your bathroom breeding Bolsheviks? It was directed at the owner of a small company. And it said, you know, what, what causes Bolshevism? It's workers who don't feel appreciated, workers who don't feel respected, Workers who don't have proper hand towels in the bathrooms, buy <laughs> our brand hand towels, and you, know, you can you know keep your workers from turning Bolshevik. And it the the advert is wonderfully illustrated with a you know with a man drawing his hands on a crappy paper towel and you know sneering because he's filled with resentment that you can you can fight Bolshevism by doing this thing. But you know, I was thinking. No, I don't think the capitalist class is afraid of Bolshevism anymore. You know, this this sort of terror that could once be harnessed to sell paper towels, you know, is not there anymore. I think sort of since the 1980s, the people aren't afraid. And so what happened in the 1980s? You got Reagan and Thatcher and the dismantling of the welfare state and everything else. So you know, I, I wonder sometimes if, you know, the Soviet communism was really good for the workers in Western countries. It'll be okay. See how things uh, things progress in the next decade. Uh, yeah. Well, but I just think that the uh, impacts of climate change are going to become even more keenly felt, and there will get to be a point where um, there will be so much damage that there will possibly be some sort of uprising, which results in. Uh, Civil unrest and well, I mean, three billion dollars a day is a lot of money. So there's a big incentive for the status quo to remain as it yeah, is. Exactly. So exactly. what would it take to make people turn away from three billion dollars a day? The answer is the threat of violence. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That people will I'm give not up liking where this billion dollars a day. You know? Well, I'm not I mean, liking where this podcast is going. This this is getting a little bit scary now. We we seem to be advocating <laughs> violence in order to fix climate yeah. change. It just. You know, given this line of reasoning, though, I guess I, I mean, my initial thought of the attack on these, uh, these works of art was, you know, I was outraged as anybody else. But then, you know, the more I thought about the, the history of, uh, of socialism and the history of anarchism and the history of social democracy, the more I thought, yeah, maybe there's justification for direct action. I think, long kicks, I think these kicks that you got from Malaysia um, have completely done something to your brain. <laughs> yeah. some sort I, of, I think uh, that is a... Long-haired liberal university professor with these kinds of views. I'm guessing Alexander's probably already on some kind of government list somewhere, and that they are quite possibly watching him right now and listening to his words. Because the government quite possible. possibly needs to do that if they're not. Well, I imagine I'm on some sort of list because when I was uh, doing my uh, Middle East course, I ended up looking at a lot of ISIS stuff. I imagine, you know, you look for the beak or, you know, things like this. So, well, you know, who is looking up the beak? Your search history is pretty, pretty damning then. Well, it's colorful. You know, I'm looking at Nazis. I'm looking at communists. I'm looking at ISIS. I'm looking for all kinds of stuff. But uh, So Alexander's telling us that we're all guilty by association. And uh, maybe we, maybe we may, may have less success when we try to fly overseas again. Is that what you're telling us, Alexander? <laughs> I... I so far have not had any difficulties flying overseas. Well, it's been but, really uh, nice having you on the podcast, Alexander. I'm sorry you can't make it ever again. 
Yeah, if it's if we're guilt by association, we just need to cut all ties right now. Mm. Thank you for your service. I've done nothing. <laughs> yes. I yes. Just, I mean, uh, I'm I'm open to hear better suggestions to make the governments of the world address climate change. Mm. Any suggestions? Wait until it goes horribly wrong, so that they you know realize it's actually a problem they have to deal with. Yeah, that seems to me indistinguishable from doing nothing. For now. Maybe make it go wrong quicker. Maybe we need to actually make more CO2 just to try and force the issue. I mean, I don't think that's a serious suggestion. I think you're, you're, you're doing that for humorous effect. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> that's spotted and jotted. <laughs> well, I don't know. Maybe you have other words for Todger you'd like to share with us. I have many, but only one per podcast episode. But yeah, just to wrap up, I guess it'll be interesting to see how uh, how long this campaign goes on and what what whether it escalates even more. Uh, There's certainly a lot of people in the UK who are very annoyed about the disruption that it's causing, like where they're blocking roads. Um, but yeah, it's certainly raising a lot of. Uh, at least awareness of the topic. And there's certainly a lot of people, I think, who are still completely unaware of climate change or at least the, the extent of the of the issue. And there's still tons of deniers around, of, of course, as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's another <laughs> is, problem. Yeah. Yeah. See how it all pans out. Well, Craig, you so, ended this podcast episode really depressingly. I, I feel yeah, like I'm, I'm sorry. going to go to bed now. <laughs> But we've got some good things coming up, though, don't we? Uh, haven't we got a, um, a conference coming up in a few weeks? Well, we actually have a Skeptics in the Pub meeting happening this Friday. So come to the Intercontinental Hotel at six o'clock this Friday and listen to us try to convince you to come to our conference on the 26th and 27th of November at the uh, Wellington Mountaineering and Tramping Club. Um, tickets are now $109. For the weekend, but still $60 for the day. We have all of our speakers sorted out and we'll be updating the website to reflect that. What else can we say? Um, just keep uh, Yeah. So if, if people want to come to the um, Skeptics in the Pub on Friday, I will measure your head for free. So it's well worth turning up. All you need is a ruler. Yeah. I'm going to bring a tape measure. Well, that'll do, won't it? I think you'd be better with a ruler, actually. Oh, I Taking a ruler to the pub, it's going to look a little bit weird. All right. All of right. I'll a bring tape a measure in the pub is absolutely every day. All the guests have tape measures. <laughs> it's in my pocket. Hotel. Um, but on. also, we have our venue for our Friday night mixer. So if you're in town, bring your partner, bring your um, boyfriend, girlfriend, um, what have you, and join us at the Welsh Dragon Bar at the end of Courtney Place. Are you so saying that incels aren't welcome? I mean, if they're paying for a conference ticket, I mean, I think we can try to change their mind. We will take up the challenge. Okay. All right. I found a ruler, Alexander. I will bring this to the pub. Okay. Hey, please yourself. <laughs> <laughs> the Intercontinental has seen us do weirder things. Uh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> we, pay, we, we spend enough money there. They really don't care. All right. Well, we're looking, looking forward to it. So I guess we've only got sort of one more podcast recording before the conference. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then a podcast recording at the conference. So if you want to come and see us live, book yourself a ticket. It's it's going to be something, I think, fun. I, I don't know. It's, it's going to be weird, isn't it, in front of people recording? Mm. Very weird. Very weird. Yeah, I had one of my students ask about the, uh, the conference. He said, I saw your name was on the list of speakers. What will you be speaking about? He wanted to know. So, you know, you might get some yeah. people. Cool. Very good. He just has to go to the website. Did and we have a? Did we sort out a student discount? I will be doing that. I think tonight on the website. It just means more faffing with WordPress. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, hopefully I'll get that done <clears throat> this evening. But yes, our student discounts are going to be about seventy-five dollars for the weekend. So it's really good. Okay, thank right. you for letting me know. I will. I will do that then. <laughs> that's a that's a final price of seventy-five dollars, not a seventy-five dollars student discount. <laughs> no, that's fair enough. Thanks for the clarification, Greg. <laughs> you don't want to be giving yes. away too much. Yeah. But yeah, bring a valid student ID with you. We don't, won't ask too many questions, but we'll ask some. We may ask don't, you to Don't bring pieces. a valid student ID. We trust you. I mean, who's going to lie about being a student, honestly? 
A lot of people. No, they're not. Being a student's great. And if they turn up and they're 50, we'll we'll just say, excuse me, we're skeptical. Would we, accept, would, we, would we accept student IDs from the University of the Third Age? <laughs> Do they have student IDs? <laughs> we'll have Do they give ask- out student IDs? Because if so, I'm signing up now for those sweet discounts. <laughs> Too bad you already paid for your ticket, just like I did. Yeah. Um, we did the early bird. Awesome. So, yes, conference.skeptics.nz. Go there now, book your ticket, or you will be in a lot of trouble. Thank you. Very good. All right. You have been listening to the Yenna podcast. If you'd like to give us some feedback, uh, you can send an email to news at skeptics.nz or come and see us at the conference. Nice <laughs> yes, in person feedback. Mm. Mm, indeed. You can come and join oh. us on stage if you write a piece for the newsletter. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We will see Thanks you all next time. Me. Yes, thank you. Good to see you, Alexander, as it always is. And thanks again. If people are interested in following you, where can they find out more information about you online, Alexander? He's a tech Luddite. He has no <laughs> social media whatsoever. <laughs> I mean, the, I have a university webpage and I shouldn't, you know, I'm not in here. I'm not here in my capacity as university representative. I'm here in my capacity as skeptic. So I should probably, you know, be discreet. <laughs> of course. Very good. I was the wrong right. person to try that on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had to try it out, given that we've been given some feedback about it. Awesome. <laughs> we tried. It failed. We'll try again. Indeed. All right. See you all next time. Bye. Thanks Bye. for having me. Adios. <laughs>